Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today is our 116th show. Today's guest is Jeff Hahn, author of Breaking Bad News. Jeff, welcome. Good to be here, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, joining us. Um, So let's start off with you telling us a little bit about your professional background. Sure. I'm a 30-plus year PR guy. I grew up in corporate communications and through a bunch of the different disciplines in that role from government relations to public affairs to financial communications. 17 years ago, I joined a small public relations firm in Austin and a year later bought it. And so here we are now um, after that process has unrolled. And what I have really found is that my core expertise, the one that I keep coming back to is crisis communication. Oftentimes that expands into Uh, issues management. So it's kind of uh, highly durable crises, if you will. Uh, But that um, experience, both on the corporate side and through just dozens of different clients over the years has created a a core competency for me that I would would think about in that issues crisis realm. Um, Clearly, I needed you this morning as I had these technical difficulties. as we were getting on today. So you were the right person to be talking to this morning, for sure. So I hope I handled it well. You did a nice job. You um, initiated corrective action, which is exactly what you have to do in a crisis. So why did you write this book? You know, the whole field of crisis communication has always felt like a bit of a mystery. When you hear that term, when you think about it, you might think of... uh, people that you've seen on TV who are known as like fixers. Well, that whole idea of a fixer, call somebody to fix it, is really delusional. It's not, um, that's something that you do see on TV, but it's not a real thing that is accessible to all of us every day, and especially to brands. So I wanted to demystify the whole arena of crisis communication. My theory, And the one that guided me to write the book is that crisis communication is a system. It's not a dark art. And if it is a system, it can be learned and sequenced so that anyone can navigate a difficult situation. So it's really my attempt to demystify the entire craft, but also then provide a method for those who are interested in developing their own unique crisis approach. Yeah, I I think back in maybe 100 years ago when you could pay off newspaper people from writing things and you were able to influence maybe as much as 30, 40 years ago, but with the internet, that's an impossibility today, right? For sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, even a few decades ago, you might even think about 
running around to the driveways in your neighborhood and picking up their papers before they saw them. But <laughs> that's not true. That's not possible these days. And um, certainly not a fix when it comes to long-term and persistent issues. Yeah. Now there's so many cameras out there that even if somebody takes a picture, like before you were able to grab the camera from them and rip out the film, but now there's a hundred people with cameras and there are cameras from buildings, cameras everywhere. So whatever you're doing, it's going to get caught at some point. So let's start off. What's your definition of bad news as it's related to something a company should really have to worry about, which you define in the book? Yeah, when I think about bad news, especially that rises to the level of crisis, there's one factor that um, is most meaningful but there are a couple of smaller ones. The smaller ones are typically the issue or the bad news is a break with your brand strategy. It doesn't conform to what you would consider to be normal. This is an important distinction. Something not normal has happened. So that's the first. The most important factor though is, and that not normal thing is public. When you put those two things together, you've got yourself a crisis because now the stakeholders that, are, that surround your brand have an expectation that's not being met. That bad news break really puts us into a crisis kind of mode. We are driven as humans uh, to do just about anything to get out of that dissonance. And it's one of the key models in the book to describe this psychological warping that happens when you're in the midst of a crisis, you're at the center of it. Uh, boy, it is very foggy, but there is one absolutely clear motivation. I got to get out of this place. Yeah. I, I, and of course, people are frightened to the point that they're um, glued to the floor like cement. They just can't move. Um, and they're afraid of any direction it's going to be worse for them. Let, let's now talk about, uh, before we get into the rest of this, what's your definition of reputation as, 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 relating, as it relates to managing its value? Yeah, reputation is a really important uh, attribute in this entire arena of crisis because here's the key to it. It is a perception owned by your stakeholders. Your reputation, Mark, if I were to ask three or four or five people around you, they would say, oh, Mark is X, and I would describe Mark as Y. Here's the important point. They own that perception. They're the ones who have created your reputation. You can understand it. You can even measure it, but you don't own it. You have to navigate the world with it. And isn't it interesting that we talk about or use phrases like building reputation? There's certainly things that you can do to build reputation, um, but others have to acknowledge that and add it to the composition of what they know about a brand or about you. And, and reputation obviously can be good or bad, but if you're trying to make it good, right, it has to be authentic. Certainly does. And that uh, the alignment of your beliefs with your actions over time builds that or creates that impression to others or in your circle. I mean, like when you see somebody wealthy found giving money, are they really doing because they 
want to do it? Or are they doing it because that's going to help put the positive spin on their reputation, right? Yeah, track record is meaningful, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it has to be sincere. You ask the question all of us probably ask when we see it is, why does bad news break? Well, you know, it's a function of, of the dissonance that's in play. And that's where media really makes its uh, money, if you will, in, in both legitimate and sometimes what we feel is almost exploitive ways. Um, the b- bad news breaks when actions or behaviors disconnect from beliefs. I believe X, but I did Y. Therein, inside of that dissonance, creates the opportunity for bad news to develop. And when it goes public, it becomes a crisis that breaks. When it's um, then picked up through amplification channels, social media, conventional media, then you've got yourself a full-blown crisis. I think uh, President Trump, good or bad, is one of the one of those that falls where people are either totally shocked by what he does and the other people are very protective uh, of what he does. And he's probably the widest example of extremes, right? I think that's fair. There, He's um, certainly set a new standard for what we might expect, especially in political discourse. And whether or not you would uh, ascribe that to the level of crisis is really a function of your own view of what is normal. If his actions or what he says when he was active on Twitter conform to your view of that's normal, that's what a president should be saying, then you don't feel like it's a crisis. If it's outside of your expectations field, then you feel like every tweet is a crisis. <laughs> yeah. So you quoted Rahm Emanuel, who said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. I wonder if he really even said that, because I think I've heard that way before he ever said that. But you quoted him in the book. Well, what's he mean by that? And how do you utilize that? Well, I, I did quote that. And. I think you're right. He's not the original author of it, but he's the one that you can find in the in the, the public records that said that. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the challenge with that idea is that crises somehow or another are good things. You never let them go to waste feels like very manipulative in my view. And when I think about that and I think about um, that, the whole notion of crises and um that people may have the perspective that, oh, we're better off now that we've gone through that. I just, um, I've always had a very hard time with it. I've worked with clients through literally dozens and dozens of issues. And I can't tell you that somehow or another they're better off afterwards. Kind of like surgery. Um, Yes, your shoulder might work better after shoulder surgery. Uh, You might be in a little less pain but there's scar tissue and it'll never go away. You always have to be aware of it, especially on a, when rain is coming, perhaps, if you have a trick knee. Um, I think that, I think the residual effect of crises for any brand um, hang on for a very long time and they are traumatic. So not letting them go to waste is one thing. You should learn um, being, 
circumspect that these are somehow another positive events that make us better than what we were? I'm not so sure. You, you wrote that anyone who tells you a brand ends up better after a crisis isn't being honest. If they handle the crisis perfectly, like time owned in the 80s, what's positive of any uh, positive things happen from that? You know, the Tylenol case is an interesting one. I would say that um, because we're still talking about it, uh, it wasn't a perfectly run crisis. And let me expand on that. Um, that particular instance is used as a case study in effective crisis management. But if Johnson & Johnson performed today the way they did then, they would be pushed out of business. Um, it took Johnson & Johnson four days to issue product recalls. It was Walgreens and CVS who pulled Tylenol off the shelves, not the manufacturer. In today's faster moving news cycles, Johnson & Johnson will be persecuted for that. Um, and so when we look at the positive effects, we just have to keep in mind times have changed. So have expectations. So what came positive out of the uh, Tylenol poisonings case? Well, we might say that more protective um, bottles with seals that we can visibly inspect is a good and positive thing to protect people's safety. We also might reflect back on the fact that that's scar tissue. Um, it's sort of too bad, isn't it, that we have to have protective labels to ensure people's safety because that kind of thing can happen. And so I always view these things as, and um, uh, try to view them holistically and with today's expectations in mind. Well, we're seeing a lot of that with all the gun violence going on in the country. And uh, it's a shame that we have to surround children like it's Fort Knox um, in order to protect them. Uh, what is the life cycle of a crisis? Could you please walk us through it? And how long does this last? Because you talk about this in the book. Sure thing. You know, there, there's a couple of different ways to view crises uh, from a time standpoint. Um, let's talk about the big picture crises like, for example, uh, Deepwater Horizon, the uh, BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, that crisis lasted uh, over 100 days. You might say that once the oil was, the, that oil well was capped, um, that it turned from crises into issues management. So I think the, the definition of crises is that if it continues to be an ongoing uh, emergency event, you're still in it. To so think more easily perhaps of a burning building. Until that fires out, the crisis is on. Now, that's one way to view the a crisis. I think in terms of response, the best in class, the best in the world rapid response teams, which is my term for a crisis management team, can effectively move a narrative into place to control, at least protect some of the reputation of a brand that's encountering a crisis within two hours. What kind of information should you share with employees, customers, and stakeholders 
Is there anything you shouldn't share? Because each of them you have to communicate differently to. For sure. First, let me say that uh, employees are a fantastic first line of defense for any brand. If there's any audience um, that you can communicate to most quickly, it is your built-in ambassador set of employees. So prioritize them in your communications outreach. But your question is, um, is there anything you shouldn't share? And the answer is absolutely. Um, first, the most important thing when inside of a crisis event to share is what you know. What you shouldn't share is what you don't know. And oftentimes brands and spokespeople feel trapped by questions that are hypothetical in nature, that have the ability to take you into the future that you're not operating in. When will this be solved? When will uh, we see a conclusion to this? What's gonna happen next? All of those kinds of future tense questions shouldn't be talked about. The most important communication rule inside of a crisis situation is to stay in the present. Those sentences start with this phrase. At this moment, here's what I can say. At this moment, here's what I know. Staying in present really helps keep you out of difficult situations and stating hypotheticals that you shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that's what they could have used on, uh, with the shooting in Texas for the chief of police saying exactly that because things were evolving. Uh, quickly, and things that they thought were true, weren't true, and so forth. But what he knew at the moment in time that he talked to the, to the world, uh, he probably should have addressed that way, that way. Did you watch him handling the crisis by any chance? Sure. I watched a lot of footage of that and uh, heartbreaking. We should pause just to extend our thoughts out to all the affected families in Uvalde. I mean, it was just a horrific event. Is I think you're right that um, the pol police chief, any spokesperson, by the way, gets very easily trapped into assumptions and hypotheticals. And um, what you've got to really maintain and have a lot of discipline around is this is what I know right now. And, and, and when you're talking to employees, you have to pretend as if you're talking to the world, right? Because how many times have employees leaked emails to the media? you thinking, hey, it's only staying in-house, but it literally gets around the globe fast, fast because somebody feels like they need to tell the whole world whatever you wrote. Oh, for sure. Um, an employee audience of more than two is, is a public event. So if, it's, if a message is leaving your rapid response team war room, you are making it public. Use that moment, though, to um, address employees knowing that they're going to forward information if it is sent. They're going to be on social media. Uh, they're going to be texting. And so you just have to be aware of that, but address them like a legitimate public rather than an inner circle. Um, what's the process a company should go through as soon as uh, something significant bad news happens, like the tainted Tylenol pills, the Exxon vial, these oil spill, the Cadbury chocolate, salmonella, all these things. You mentioned the book. How quickly should you respond? Is it like as soon as you know? How and how quickly should that actually happen? 
Well, I think one of the mistakes that brands make in crises is that they wait until they um, feel like they have, quote unquote, all the information possible. That's a that's a big problem. Um, in my view, establishing narrative out in front of media, amplifiers, social media um, is so much more important. Talk about what you know today and the best crisis teams, the rapid response teams I've served on and been able to review can establish that narrative in about two hours. It's so important to create the first and official channel. That official channel then becomes the place that amplifiers like reporters go to. Waiting too long allows others, third-party experts that a reporter might pull, pull into a conversation, social media trolls that might take over a particular feed. It allows others to take over the primary narrative. So establish it quickly, establish it officially, and it's okay to be able to say, we don't know everything. This is a uh, emerging situation, but the expectations of the day have changed. Today, we expect as an audience and of stakeholders to be informed of things as they develop. And, and 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. We wanted the story to be uh, told, solved, wrapped up in a one 30-second news segment. Uh, and that's not realistic today. Today, the there's too many communication channels. And so we just need to establish that official voice right away. That's the first most important thing to do when any bad news breaks. And again, that combination of uh, off strategy uh, and out of expectations made public, that's when you know it's time to establish a, uh, an official voice. Um, many of the companies that listen to the show are global. And so I'm wondering, do you break bad news differently depending on who you're talking to? And does gender, age, company position, the geographic location of the company, the culture of the region that you're in or the country, does all that matter? Well, yes and no. I think it doesn't matter in terms of establishing official voice. That should be done no matter what. And it is uh, not bound by any of the factors that you talked about. Where those factors will come into play is through the navigation of the issue, navigation of the crisis, particularly in messaging. There are certain cultures where face-saving is a very high expectation, very high standard, and an absolute must inside of the messaging. So you're going to see these cultural differences appear in the messaging. Then the other two M's are messenger, who is delivering the message, and then how is it delivered? Is it delivered through a written statement? Is it delivered through a press conference? And there's a dozen different ways to deliver a, me a message. Um, those are just two examples. So you'll see those differences appear inside of the um, decision-making of message, messenger, and method. I, I got to believe how they handle a crisis in, in China is different than how we handle a crisis here. 
I mean, we even kind of saw how they handled um, the COVID outbreak. I mean, I was in Australia when it was coming out there and it had not reached the U.S. in terms of information. But they handled the uh, crisis, I think, differently than we might have handled it. Did did you see a difference? Certainly. I think all of us uh, can understand what you're talking about there. When you asked the, the question the first time, I interpreted it as, how should you? Um, you're reflecting on a really important point, which was, but in reality, how do other countries, other cultures? And you'll find remarkable differences in this, um, especially dependent on cultural norms. We're back to that uh, uh, theme, aren't we? What is normal? What is expected? And those will have a profound effect on message, messenger, and method of delivery. How do you identify reckless behavior in clients and people or organizations that you could see potentially leading to a hit in the company's reputation? Because I kind of look at Elon Musk as an example of that. He's kind of a bit reckless uh, in both his communication and how he carries himself, but I don't know that he cares at the end of the day. And I'm not singling him out that I don't favor him or or support him. I'm just mentioning that. Well, those um, characters that we've talked about, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, they are certainly um, outside of the boundaries of what most of us operate in. Uh, And so we have to hold them out as exceptions to the rule. But to the core of your question, can you identify uh, recklessness, either in behavior, actions, systems, processes? Yes. The answer is absolutely yes. And there are methods. I use a tool with my clients called the Cassandra Calculator to um, understand issues and the severity, the probability, and the level of exposure. Those can all be rated. It's, it's a bit subjective, but they can all be rated and calculated, then gauged on a scale of priority. We've got something here that's really um, got a lot of potential and severe potential to be a problem. Let's address that and knock it down and burn down that risk, as the phrase goes, um, while others might just simply be on the radar. Uh, and we just have to know that they are there and could be issues you can prepare for those to a certain extent, but really good brands don't simply write talking points about what might happen. Um, instead, they take those issues that appear on a radar and they burn down the risk as fast as they can. Did you name that after Cassandra in Greek mythology, prophecies or something? Yeah, fantastic. Well done, Mark. Um, that's exactly who it's named after. Cassandra, as many might know, had a she was a prophetess. She could see the future. The trouble for her was that no one believed her when she said it. And you know what? That often is true when it comes to issues management, crisis management. We can gather a group of people around the war room table and say, we think these are the seven to 10 issues. Um, 95% of us will say, well, maybe. That's probably never going to happen. Or that's really a, a long shot. And so you see us minimizing risk because it causes dissonance in our own heads to think about it. 
Is there any kind of financial formula that's used to determine whether a problem has risen to the level of crisis and needs an individual rifle shot or total community or global response? I don't think so. It was a re- it's a really interesting question. And um, I think when you ask about uh, um, rifle shots or silver bullets, um, my mind immediately goes to the idea of silver buckshot. Um, there are all kinds of ways to evaluate risk. Uh, insurance companies have their own actuarial formulas uh, and do that in a unique and proprietary way, but brands can do it as well. It's going to vary um, in in how people see and evaluate severity and risk. So there's not a single perfect or correct formula to use. That said, the best practice is in fact to sit down and think through probability, severity, and exposure. If you just consider those three variables, you're on your way towards at least evaluating your risk for crisis in a rational way. What's the best way to respond to the media? And and please share some examples. You know, when the media contacts you, how should you respond? Well, we see all kinds of examples in uh, media today. We were talking about the sheriff from Uvalde earlier. There's no perfect or right way, so to speak. The most important factors, or at least practices, I would say, is that, first of all, you should respond. Um, They are not going away. And if you don't respond, they will establish and set up their own official opinion on you. You have now lost control of your own narrative. So number one, best practice, do respond. Number two, best practice, stay in the present. Here's what I can tell you right now. And then number three, establish a follow-on time. I'll be back with you in 30 minutes, or we will be gathering in an hour to address all of these to all media that are interested. Those kind of practices give you an opportunity to establish narrative, to, to explain the your own viewpoint, point of view on uh, any, any kind of issue or crisis. And so for me, um, following those guidelines is a set of practices that allows you to uh, navigate even the most difficult situation. Here's a question from the audience, and this goes back to an earlier question I was asking. The people who are outside of the norm, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, are arguably, are arguably speaking with authenticity. Do companies want to mute muzzle or have anything they say get whitewashed to fit the company brand? <laughs> uh, very fair question. Well, let's just think about our two protagonists in this in the stories that we've been telling, Donald Trump and Elon Musk. Elon Musk has no public relations department. Uh, he fired them all. He is the voice. And uh, does that mean he wants to uh, mute or muzzle himself or others? I don't know. <laughs> we evaluate him on his own merits. Donald Trump, uh, his own communications team was in a, a constant bind uh, by what he was saying and and the messaging that he was sending out. And so I suspect to the core of the question, 
do companies want to mute or muzzle that um, what brands are more interested in is having a consistent message that represents and helps them build reputation uh, without having to deal with the distraction of um, what may be considered authentic opinion. We all have uh, opinions about particular things associated with our companies that we belong to, but um, whether or not it's appropriate to express those in a public manner, uh, so in a way that somehow or another puts the brand or the reputation of the brand in a precarious situation is a whole nother matter. I feel like there's a big responsibility for people to um, get in alignment in order to um, support and reinforce the brand reputation of any particular entity. I was saving this question for later, but I want to ask it now. Uh, how do you stop or respond to character assassination, which happens every second of every day on social media? When someone continues to spread the same lie and people share it, then the lie takes on its, a life of its own and people take it as gospel. I mean, it's a, a horrible thing. What do you tell your clients to do about that? Or what do you tell any of us to do? It is true. There's an old quote. I think it was Jonathan Swift who invented it. A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth even gets its pants on. Uh, <laughs> that is a strange phenomena in the, the human grapevine. We seem to thrive in this kind of space and it's, it's really challenging. But, you know, for me, the, the um, importance of standing your ground, establishing an official voice and using the message options at your disposal are really important. In Breaking Bad News, I talk about 16 different message options. And those knowing your options gives you the opportunity to respond to any kind of voice, any kind of accusation, no matter its source. People can say what they want. They can have their opinion. You've got to establish your own voice and use the techniques or the messaging options in order to um, fight back against misinformation, absolute, you know, uh, outright mistruth or lies. You can do it, um, but you've got to stand in the middle of that fire and and make sure that your voice is, in fact, um, conveying a message that people can understand and can counter, make their own decisions about what commentators might be saying. Uh, how should you use social media? And can you give some examples? Social media, of course, uh, super powerful. We all know the lightning speed at which it can move. Um, there's no right or wrong way to use it, but not using it is a bad idea. Activating yourself in your social channels to ensure those who might be following you have a place to go to find out new information is really key. So when I talk to clients about the most effective use of social media during a crisis. There's only one thing that I really want uh, our social channels to do, and that is to guide online eyeballs to an official site. So that might be a web page that we've popped up where official and 
truthful information can be found. So I really think that using social to guide people to a next click is the most effective thing to do in crisis. There are other things, however. You can use social, especially if you're using threshold um, rules. You can use it to correct blatant misinformation. You can use it to push back. Um, if you start, though, you find yourself into in a vortex of fiasco, um, there's, it's not working for you. So stay on the high ground, push people to an official location where they can get better information. Um, before I go into uh, the next question from the audience, better to use, is it better to write text or video? Like, what, how do you use each of those effectively? Yeah, both is the answer. Uh, video is the most consumed content, um, and it has the ability to convey charisma, authenticity, believability more than uh, more than simple written statements. Um, when you do written statements, you're in high control, but low authenticity. So moving to video where you can deliver those statements um, through channels that people can used to evaluate their own trust of you, I think is a very powerful idea and highly recommend it. The challenge with video, just to go one level deeper, is putting yourself in front of a reporter when you're not practiced at that skill can be very dangerous. There's a way around it, though. If you have your own video assets or resources, have one of your own team members interview your messenger. Edit that video once it's complete, release it to your stakeholders, including amplifiers like the media. They're going to use it because they have nothing else to use. You can use a video in that way very effectively. I think also this generation, the younger generation is lazy when it comes to collecting information. And if you send it to them, they'll use it, not like the old time reporters who were busy digging, digging, digging. If it, does, if it doesn't show on the internet, even when I teach at university, if it's not there, it doesn't exist in their mind. And that's it. So whatever you put out there is going to be what people see and believe. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, uh, you've hit on a phenomena that we've all been frustrated by. And, and in fact, we've all fallen victim to over the since the rise of uh, social media, and that is short attention span phenomena. We all are working in an attention deficit disorder these days because the volume of content that's coming at us all the time. So you'll see people defaulting to the path of least resistance when it comes to consuming information about a particular brand or crisis. Um, that means that it's incumbent upon a rapid response team to develop materials quickly in order to intercept the eyeballs in those paths. Uh, question from the audience. Many people think Trump is a master communicator and given his immense popularity among a large group of people, what are your thoughts on his apparent and arguably successful crisis management mantra of deny, 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 and then project the accusations on the ones doing the accusing? Yeah, attacking the accuser is one of the options in the 16 that I talk through in the book. Um, but we have to ask ourselves um, about the premise of the question. Um, what is Donald Trump's reputation? 
when we think about that and ask ourselves, um, how investable is it these days? I think you would find an audience that's pretty split. Um, when it comes to brands, what we're trying to do is create a um, reputation platform that almost anyone would feel comfortable being a part of. Um, there are certain people who are never going to like, for example, a fossil fuel brand. Um, that said, there are others who recognize the value of fossil fuels. Um, when we take this example and try to put it onto a singular persona, uh, and as talked about before, an exceptional persona like Donald Trump, it, it gets to be very tough to try to link the lessons of him to a practice of reputation management and crisis communication. Um, they are arguably at different means for different ends. Um, I, I might say, for example, that Trump's intent is to divide audiences, whereas a brand, it, its intent is typically not to create division and controversy um, in the normal corporate sense that we would think of. And so it's at the core of that intent notion that we find the cleavage between the example of Trump and the everyday work that we might all do in support of a brand. You write how big companies should form a crisis team. What experts uh, should be on that team? And if you're a small business or even a national business, you might not have all of those assets there. What do you do then? So let's start off with the big team. What kind of experts do you typically tell them they got to put into the war room? For sure. The rapid response team, that's the phrase I use when I help set up teams for this work, um, ought to be composed of these characters. First of all, a chief decision maker. It's an important distinction that I didn't say a CEO. Because in larger entities, CEOs have to take on bigger issues or they have a larger field of view. Let's not assume that the CEO is the right person. In smaller companies, that may be true. But um, chief decision maker is the label. Number two, a, chief, a deputy chief decision maker. Why is that important? Because Murphy's Law is in effect when crises hit. So everything that could go wrong does. And the first thing that goes wrong is that the chief decision maker is on an airplane someplace, unreachable in the Rocky Mountains, who knows? So you need a chief decision maker, a deputy chief decision maker. And then counterintuitively, what I say is the third most important member of your rapid response team is a rapid response team coordinator, almost like an administrative assistant but re, um, really able to stand inside of a pressurized situation to assemble people, to track conversations, to synthesize and summarize information in an effective way and on the move. Those three people are the core team. Also around the table, your legal counsel, your senior communications manager, and then subject matter experts. All of those are important on a more expansive rapid response team. And it's in your subject matter experts where you'll find, oh, you might have one, you might have 21 subject matter experts who can help from that position at the table. Well, that's my dream team when it comes to 
setting up a war room. And the interesting thing about rapid response teams, in my experience, is that it's the thing that brands get wrong the most. They don't know how to activate. They don't know who's on the team, who's in charge, and they have no activation mechanism. It's sort of like Keystone Cops, and they lose super valuable time once bad news breaks by just not knowing where to go or how to get together. So just having that mechanism in place is a really important factor in preparing for an eventual crisis. Uh, how, how do you get ahead? You know, uh, you hadn't quite answered you answered the question about the big company, but for a small company, there's a lot of small companies listening to this. What do they do since they don't have those kinds of experts? Same configuration, really. It's just a matter of how you fill the chairs. Chief decision maker, deputy chief decision maker, rapid response team coordinator. You have three people that you can run a rapid response action. You might need to go external, um, outside counsel, for example. Um, you may need to use an agency like mine to be your spokesperson and to guide some of the, the crisis process. So if you don't have it internal, you might think about outsourcing certain things where the, um, those positions can help you make decisions. Even subject matter expertise can be done that way. Um, you'll see every once in a while, like university professors come on the news. Well, they, are, they can be contracted to join your rapid response team um, if they have a peculiar subject matter that's important to your brand, your company. I would think once you start a meeting, now you've, you're, the word rapid ends up being X'd out of the conversation um, because now you're in a meeting and everybody's got an opinion and then everybody's got to review uh, what the group has decided. There has to be a lot of group thinking, even though you're hoping the decision maker is going to go and make the hard decision. Maybe that person uh, is still not sure and still getting feedback. And before you know it, the crisis has taken a life of its own and there's no way to, to put the, well, you're definitely not putting the genie bottle back in the bottle, but you're, it's out of control. The, the fire is like California. It's all burning down millions of acres. Um, yeah, that team missed the window. And what in, my, in the model that I created in Breaking Bad News, um, I call that the TikTok box. And if you miss that window, you miss your opportunity to establish an official voice. That's a failure on a rapid response team part. And one of the real challenges inside of psychological dissonance is that we seek consensus as almost a human habit. Um, what we should be seeking is consent. I've heard your opinion. I understand it. We've considered it. Now we're moving in this direction. Consent is much more powerful than consensus. And so um, that's one of the reasons rapid response teams ought to train so that they get used to using that kind of language and those kinds of judgments. A question from the audience. For a smaller company, is the rapid response team expected to get up in the wee hours of the night to handle a crisis, presumably, presumably large uh, companies of people staffed in different time zones? Yes. <laughs> if you're on a rapid response team, you get up. Um, I did it for years and years when I was at Motorola. And uh, 
uh, you get worn out uh, over time if you have con- persistent crises. But absolutely, because you are a trained team, you begin to know how each other works under pressure. And that's a unique and valuable asset for any brand to have. It's not something that you can just allow anybody to show up and, and expect to behave in a way that allows you to move quickly enough to establish official voice. I, I think this question I'm going to ask you now is really important. In the book, you give an example of media questions and how you should answer the questions, considering there might be the possibility of a lawsuit. Should your uh, answers be scripted? You often see lawyers answering questions. Is that because they know what to say and not to say? I mean, we even have that on the board of my condo association on the board and our president's a lawyer and anything that we get nervous about, we make we make him the spokesperson uh, because we're worried that things will be taken in a certain way and there's bound to be a lawsuit. And whatever you say is going to be, whether it's innocuous or you didn't think that it would be a problem to say it, it could end up biting you uh, in the behind later. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, lawyers are a really good asset to have, and and they are trained, often, especially as litigators, they are trained to be in front of an audience and to speak. That training can't be underestimated. It's very valuable. But others can be trained as well. So if you have a qualified spokesperson who knows how to stay in the present, they are certainly camera ready, in my view. doesn't have to necessarily be a lawyer. And sometimes lawyers have their own baggage that they bring. Um, It's not a clean slate like, oh, they have a lawyer talking for them. Obviously they're guilty or they're hiding something. So we have to remember that there's all these perceptions that that get uh, dumped into anybody's viewpoint when they are assessing a brand inside of a crisis. And so the uh, earlier part of your question is, should you be scripted Um, Well, you should at least have a bulleted understanding of the questions that you might be asked and your responses. My guidance to clients, especially as we teach media training, is we don't answer questions. We respond to questions with our messages, and we layer those messages so they fit the narrative that we want to to put into play. and you've got to be able to, and this is where trained spokespeople come into play, you've got to be able to take those messages and responses and make them sound different and unique no matter what question gets fired your way. So scripted, no, but certainly confident in the responses and the key messages that you want to deliver, yes. I think head coaches of football teams are really good at that. They just... They uh, say things and you're like, oh, that was very thoughtful. Then you look at the quote later and you're like, he didn't say anything. That's right. That's right. I always find find that uh, interesting. Uh, Question from the audience. Can you make recommendations to minimize crisis if you're in a rapid response team and you want to have a family life or enjoy your life? In other words, anticipate problems or minimize the amount of problems. Yeah, really fun question. Thank you for asking. Um, I would suggest this, um, with your rapid response team, hold issues management uh, briefings twice a year. When you do remove yourself from the idea of crisis response 
to issues management, what you're doing is creating a longer view. And maybe then you can make management or business decisions to burn down risk. If you can reduce risk, if you can minimize the potential, then not only are you doing your brand an enormous favor, you're probably doing your top line and bottom line an enormous favor as well. So just reframing crisis to issues gives you the opportunity to see further out. And that could be one way to help um, others get into the conversation. Um, a little bit of uh, asterisk on that. If you're in an issues management conversation with attorneys, uh, they may be very hesitant for you to even talk about risks that exist inside of your brand. Uh, and that is a uh, situation that needs to be negotiated. If you don't talk about them, how can you minimize them? So you're gonna to have to work and build relationships with your legal team in order for them to get comfortable to help you burn down those risks. Another question from the audience, should messaging um, be influenced by culture for rapid response? Messaging should be influenced mostly by um, what is present, what do you know now, and how does that knowledge then move you back to what we might call normal? How does it move your brand back to expectations? Your cultural dimensions in your messaging will absolutely come out. There's just, you can't remove yourself from those kinds of uh, methods of speaking or um, addressing audiences, et cetera. They'll, they'll be there, they'll be present. Uh, but your most important objective is to convey in the present what gets you back to normal. Uh, I guess maybe this will be our, our last question. If you're taking responsibility and want to show remorse, what kinds of things do you need to consider that won't end up being part of a lawsuit or do you just focus on doing the right thing? I really like that idea. Um, doing the right thing is um, a real challenge. You're, and, but communicating about that is okay. It's also okay to apologize if the situation has evolved to a point where the audience is ready to hear it. Let's take the Deepwater Horizon example one more time. Oil is spilling into the Gulf at a very rapid rate. Um, is that the time to apologize and then expect everyone to accept it? No. Do those uh, apologies once the emergency has abated, once there's more information known. The worst advice that any rapid response team could take is we need to get the CEO at a press conference to apologize. That is the worst possible advice you could ever take because none of those are true and none of those are in the right sequence. In my mind, sequencing is everything and a well-placed apology at the right time could be just what the doctor order. So it's certainly a good messaging option it just needs to be done and done very well. A full apology has eight components to it that I list in the book. Um, so it can be a very effective way to reduce liability. And I give several examples. One of them, uh, I, I'll just talk about very quickly. Um, an elderly woman spills a hot cup of McDonald's coffee in her lap. She sues, is awarded an enormous amount of money. Afterwards, she said, you know, if they just paid my medical bill and said they were sorry, uh, I would have let it go. Probably back then she would have let it go. Today, with a so litigious, 
that everybody's looking for an opportunity to score some bucks, right? New expectations we talked about. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And I thought the book was fabulous and one that every uh, CEO should have a copy of that book because there's nobody who can escape something bad happening during the course of their career or, or with the business that they're in. And it could be a huge global problem or it might just be a smaller problem, but it's still, it's a problem. Thanks again for coming on today. And uh, every, oh, wait a minute, if you have time, we do have one more question here. And I always like to make sure the audience gets all the answered. How many people uh, you have from the UK today Maybe the speaker can talk about how a brand in a more conservative cultures like the UK approach rapid response. Well, I'm not sure that there is a um, difference necessarily. Rapid response is as much a mindset as it is anything. The um, conclusion I draw in the book is the best brands, no matter where they are, um, really understand that in order to minimize risk, they need to move quickly in the outset of a, of a crisis event. That is a mindset that is different from conservative or more progressive culture. Um, it is a way of thinking that can guide a brand to just have itself in a good posture, a good uh, footing if and when something bad goes happen. So I think I might disconnect it from the cultural, conservative, more progressive, and just think about it as a way of considering the future. Again, thank you so much. And we're glad we were able to get everybody's questions in. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. And uh, we hope to have you back sometime if you write a second book. Thanks very much, Mark. I enjoyed being here. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.